everyone. Welcome to episode two of Unjustly, a true crime podcast with an emphasis on wrongful convictions and the flaws of our justice system. My name is Stephanie and this is my co-host Sandy. Hello. So how is uh, going back to work been going for you, Sandy? Um, It's okay. So with this pandemic, I think everyone's jobs are kind of changing. Um, a lot has changed. I was on maternity leave for about four months. So coming back, everything's a lot different. Um, I'm currently a foster child advocate. Uh, so I help foster kids during their court hearings. Um, and we do advocacy work for them. And so now that the courts are basically, um, either closed or doing virtual, uh, we're all working from home. So it's kind of sad because I don't get to be in court anymore. I don't get to be with the foster kids. Um, it's troubling because we're kind of unsure of how things are going in their home. Um, we can't really keep track without being able to visit them and things like that, or, you know, having them come into court and talk about the needs. So everyone's kind of like calling in. So it's a lot different. Um, but, uh, we'll see how it goes. I mean, we're doing the best that we can. I'm a little tired, though. I mm-hmm. thought working from home would be okay. Um, but I do have a four-month-old at home who's a terrible sleeper. <laughs> Absolute terrible. It's every single night. It's awful. Um, I don't know what I did wrong. But <laughs> <laughs> she's um, keeping us up all night. And also, I am I hate cutting her nails. Oh. her little baby nails it's terrifying to me mm-hmm. so she has these like pterodactyl claws <laughs> so she keeps like clawing at me and mm-hmm. i'm tired <laughs> and she spits up on me <laughs> and so it's this weird balance um but my i still have my vision on you know helping the foster kids in the court system and doing all that so i think i'll be fine um but mm-hmm. it's, it's changed a lot so has your job changed with the pandemic Um, I'm actually one of the few whose job has not really changed. So I know the pandemic has obviously affected so many people in so many ways that we haven't really stopped to consider. So like with you, your foster children, right? They're spending all times at home. They're maybe like not having that like escape to see you and maybe like bring about issues that they're having at home. So without having the actual parents there, maybe, Mm -hmm. I don't know. So like, yeah, that's definitely something that... I think a lot of people don't stop to consider when they refuse to wear their masks, but I work for a genetic testing company and the majority of our workforce works from home. There's a very small percentage of the workforce that actually works from the lab in San Francisco. So for me, not much has changed other than, you know, work slowed down for a little bit, but is slowly picking back up, but I'm still working remote. I still work from home every day, kind of roll out of bed go downstairs, work from home, work from home, (laughs) legit. So, um, that in that sense, things haven't changed, but obviously we haven't been able to really go out, see our friends, see our family. So it's definitely starting to kind of become a little bit harder to not only work from home, but just be home all the time because we used to have these little escapes and being able to see our friends and our family. And so it's, yeah. I think we're like in a hundred a day, like one sixty something of lockdown in California. So, <laughs> and you and I have been doing this pretty well, the quarantining, the staying mm-hmm. home. I think we took it serious from the start. Right. Um. So I've pretty much been home since my last month of pregnancy. So it's been like five months that mm-hmm. I've been home. So yeah, it's fine. I'm it's fine. starting to weigh a little <laughs> bit, but things are fine. And you know, I think 
like we've mentioned, I think staying home and even not having those little escapes is worthwhile knowing that we're not risking anybody else's life. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, we're able to get back into the courts sooner so that advocacy can continue from the courts and not from our laptops or on Zoom meetings. So we're happy to wear a mask. We're happy to stay home. So that's a little bit about where Sandy and I are. Today, we will be discussing the wrongful conviction of James Joseph Richardson. So for my story today, I got information from Arcadia and the 20-year effort to exonerate James Joseph Richardson by Hans Schur for the Justice Denied magazine, from Wikipedia, from Guilty Until Proven Innocent, the story of James Joseph Richardson by Tess McCrindle, um, from the Hex Files Collective, from Time Simply Passes, the documentary, and from Bow to Fate, a podcast that did a story on James Joseph and Richardson. He is an African-American migrant worker who worked in the orange groves in Arcadia, Florida during the 1960s, which we all know is the civil rights era. Um, Arcadia is a small south-central Florida community of rural farm fields and cattle pastures and is known as the scary Florida sundown town of the KKK. So mm. that's kind of setting the tone for where um, where we're headed. Where we're headed. <laughs> James and his wife, Annie Mae, lived in a two-bedroom apartment with their seven children in the quarter, which was an area designated for African Americans. So still very much a divided town. Okay. Um, the morning of October 25th, 1967, was much like any other. Annie Mae woke up, made lunch for herself and James, and prepared lunch for her kids with the leftover rice, beans, and grits from her and James's lunch. While Betty, the oldest of the seven children, helped Annie Mae get her siblings ready, James went next door to Bessie Reese King's house to speak to Dorothy Bracer, her daughter who usually watched the Richardson's kids. That morning, Dorothy had errands to run, so Bessie offered to watch the seven children. Before James and Annie Mae jumped on the bus that drove them the 16 miles it took to get to the farm, Annie Mae locked the children's lunches in the icebox, later stating that she had started doing this as a way to prevent the children from getting into it and spilling the little food that they had. So clearly, running a household with seven children is difficult. Sandy, you have a household with two children, mm-hmm. and I'm sure it's... It's too, too many. Too, too many. <laughs> so seven is even harder. So she's she's locking the food in the icebox and so they head to work the three oldest children betty who's eight alice who is seven and Susie may who's six head to the all black smith brown school while the youngest four children doreen who's five vanessa who's four diane who's three and james jr who is two stay behind with bessie so again they live in the designated black area they go to an all black school was the school segregated or was it just an all-black school because of the community, the population at the time? No. So actually what I found in researching the story is that Arcadia is um, predominantly white. Mm-hmm. The portion of the population that is African-American is only 12%. So it's not like there was a huge black community in Arcadia. It just was that it was the 1960s and mm-hmm. the school was segregated. They had their own designated living area. So it just was a, a product, I guess you could say, okay. at the time that they were living in. So at lunchtime, Betty, Alice, Susie, and Doreen head home for lunch. Bessie states that she divided the food up evenly among the seven children who then ate and headed back to school. Shortly after arriving to school, chaos ensued. 
All four of the children located in different classrooms started foaming at the mouth and convulsing. Teachers rushed the children to the nurse's office, but by the time they arrived, Betty was the only one who could still speak. The principal realizes something horrible is happening, so he drove the children to the hospital. Back at the Richardson residence, the four children still with Bessie were experiencing the same symptoms. It was later said that Bessie had actually called the school looking for the older girls, wanting them to return home to take care of the younger kids who were quote-unquote acting up. So she knew something was going on, didn't say anything, and instead just wanted to get out of there. Um, So it kind of gives you an idea of what kind of person um, Bessie Reese was. So some of the school teachers went to the Richardson home to check on the children to find that Bessie was on the porch holding James Jr. while Vanessa, Diana, lay on the porch screaming in pain, and Doreen was later found inside of the apartment hiding in the corner. They too were taken to the hospital while a call was placed to their parents advising that one of their children was ill and that one of the two parents needed to go to the hospital. Autopsies would later show that the children had ingested parathion, a deadly toxin citrus farmers used to kill insects. John Minohan, a member of the Arcadia Police and the first officer to respond to the hospital, decided to head to the Richardson home to look for any signs of poison. It's important to note that there are two separate law enforcement agencies involved in the case. The first is the Arcadia Police Department, and then the second is the DeSoto County Sheriff's Department. Office Moynihan reported that the smell in the apartment was so intense but was unable to locate the source of the poison and so returned to the hospital. Both James and Annie May left work thinking James Jr., who had been sickly, was the one who the call was about, but by the time they reached the hospital, six of their seven children had passed away. At this time, DeSoto County Sheriff Frank Klein had arrived and had taken it upon himself to notify James and Annie May that the children were dead. He immediately began questioning James and Annie May, making it quite clear he had his eyes on them. He asked James what he had done the day before. James mentioned that he had met with a door-to-door insurance agent by the name of George Purvis, who had tried selling him policies for the family, including each of the seven children. James, unable to pay for the premium, agreed to meet with Purvis once he had the money, but no policies were ever purchased. Klein, however, had found his motive. Klein made several trips to search the Richardson residence to look for any signs of the poison found to have killed the children, but found nothing. It wasn't until Charlie Smith, a resident of the quarter, happened to find the poison in the Richardson shed, which was prompted by Bessie. So Bessie asked Charlie to go look in the shed for the poison, which is where the poison happened to be found. Police came and took the bag as evidence, but noted that while everything in the shed was dry, the bag of poison was very damp. After testing the children's lunches, the leftover bowl of grits, and other kitchen items, they found the presence of enough parathion to kill everyone in a large city. While Bessie was the last to handle all of those items before the children ate, she was never investigated as a suspect. Due to the violent deaths of the children, there was a ton of media coverage, and it didn't take long before the nation and the world was captivated by the story. The public wanted answers and started putting pressure on the police and sheriff departments to make an arrest. In fact, the Miami Herald called it the most ghastly crime in Florida history. In the next few days, the media converged upon Arcadia, a town that was unprepared to handle the judgment that was brought on by the big city media. A retired lawman very familiar with the case stated that law enforcement felt the need to solve the case right away to make the media go away before they found out what the small town was all about. So even though we are now 53 years from the date of the murders, um, he's still scared about what 
publishing his name might actually say. So he definitely wanted to remain anonymous, but wanted people to know that there was a big pressure to just solve the case by any means necessary to mm-hmm. make everyone leave the town before they found out what kind of town they actually are. What was going on there. And so in researching Arcadia, I did see that this is the kind of town that does have the KKK in their Christmas parades. So (laughs) that's the kind of town they're about. And so before any of that really came out, they just wanted to um, make an arrest and, you know, get rid of all the media. So Frank Klein from the DeSoto County Sheriff had both James and Annie May arrested on charges of child neglect and made arrangements with the Arcadia Chief of Police, Richard Barnard, to hold them both out of jail rather than transporting them to the county prison. Klein did this with the hopes that James and Annie May would be more likely to speak with others in the jail and incriminate themselves. So he begins making claims that portray James in a negative light. He brings to light that James had been married three previous times but had abandoned his wives. He also claims that he had 22 children, of which three died under suspicious circumstances. And while James did not have 22 children, three of his children had passed away at young ages. Samson um, was two years old. Sammy Lee Bonner was six months. They both died of dehydration and malnutrition. And Anne Laura had died at eight months old of an infection. James was not found to be involved and there was no wrongdoing found. And while Klein knew all of this, he chose to bring this to the media, essentially trying the case in the media before James ever had a chance to a fair trial. Mark Lane, an author and civil attorney, and John S. Robinson, a defense attorney, learned about the case and contacted the NAACP to see if they would represent Richardson. Can I do a side note about Mark Lane? Please do. Um, he's actually a survivor of the Jonestown Massacre. No. I promise you. Stop. Yeah. So when Congressman Ryan went to visit Jonestown, um, he, Lane was actually the attorney for the People's Temple. <laughs> and when he went with the congressman, uh, Lane was actually able to escape and hide in the jungle. But he heard the gunshots and screaming of the people who took the cyanide. Another fun fact. I'm obsessed with Jonestown. I think that's one of the most interesting, I guess, massacres. Oh yeah, that, that there are. I mean, it's it's so interesting. That's kind of really cool. Sword and Scale uh, is a podcast that did an episode on that, mm-hmm. and they the entire episode is basically just recordings from mm-hmm. Jonestown, mm-hmm. and it's insane. And that day that it happens, um, you can hear all the kids in the background oh. like screaming, and then all the people. Some of them were like, "Yeah, we're all for this," and other people were like, "I don't think we should do this." Mm-hmm. Um, but it's really crazy to hear. But I, Mark Lane, was actually their actually, attorney yeah, at that time. Very cool. Very fun fact. The most fun. The most fun. The most of funs, Mark Lane. <laughs> so side note, the NAACP, which is the National Association for the Advancement of Color People, was founded in 1909 in response to the ongoing violence against black people around our country. It is the largest and most preeminent civil rights organization in the nation and the Legal Defense Fund was founded in 1940 as part of the NAACP, but later separated in 1957 to become a completely separate organization. It is recognized as the nation's first civil and human rights law organization. And so the president of the NAACP at the time, Joel Atkinson, agreed to represent Richardson and asked Richardson who he wanted as his representative. Richardson decided that he wanted Robinson to represent him. 
So although Klein was convinced that James was responsible for the deaths of his children as a way to cash in on the insurance policies that George Purvis had supposedly sold him, the Arcadia police were continuing their investigation of the children's death. They found that Bessie Reese was actually on parole for shooting and killing her second husband at the time of the poisoning and that Bessie's first husband had died after eating a meal of beef stew that Bessie had made for him. They also found that Bessie had been angry at Richardson for introducing her then third husband to the woman who he would eventually leave Bessie for. So there's definitely some other things blood. going on. There's, yes, definitely some bad blood between um, Bessie and, and Richardson. They additionally found that a glove in her home matched a glove believed to be used in the killings. And Arcadia police brought all of this to Klein's attention but he never looked into it and dismissed everything, claiming Bessie had nothing to do with the killings. We'll later find out why we think that he's dismissing all of this, but for now, we'll continue. So the DA, Frank Schaub, and the assistant DA, John Treadwell, they didn't believe that they had enough evidence to actually charge James with the crime. So Klein found three jailhouse informants, Emma Washington, James Weaver, and James Cunningham, they each had deferring stories, but all claimed that James had confessed to the murders in prison. Even with the informants, the DA and assistant DA felt that they needed more to charge James with the crime. At this time, Klein went to speak to Judge Gordon Hayes, who had already made it clear he too believed James and Annie May were involved in the deaths. Okay, Judge Hayes was not only the presiding judge for over 30 years, but he was also the coroner, which gave him the right to hold a coroner's inquiry to decide if charges should be filed. So amidst all the pandemonium and the sensation of small town murder um, case, Judge Gordon Hayes ordered an unprecedented coroner's inquest, which is basically a mini grand jury. And with a mix of rumor, false testimonies, lies, and a hint of Southern racism, mm. the inquest certified that the children had been victims of mass ho homicide at the hands of their father. Robinson, Richard's attorney, tried to move the trial out of the county, but all he was able to do was have the jurors come from a neighboring town. The judge removed 15 potential jurors because of their opposition to the death penalty and two more because they did not believe circumstantial evidence was enough to convict someone of capital crime. Eventually, the jury ended up consisting of 11 men, one woman, all of whom were white and many of which had been former members of the KKK, which we know was clearly rampant in Arcadia mm -hmm. in 1968. So already... Having an all-white jury, too, seems to be very common in wrongful conviction cases of minorities, mm -hmm. it seems like. So, I mean, essentially, it's not even a jury of your peers at that say. point, it's, which is their guaranteed right to have. Right. It's definitely not constitutional because mm -hmm. you can't have a fair jury if you're... Or you can't have a fair trial if the jury is not... doesn't look like you. At least someone on there has to look like you. Yeah. None of these people look like James Joseph Richardson. Or at so least just be diverse. It was in not any diverse. way. None. Mm -hmm. There was one woman. Oh, okay. So <laughs> there's your diversity. <laughs> Thank you very much. James's trial began on May 27th, 1968, which just like a quick thing. I was looking up 1968. 1968 was the year Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. Okay. We were in the Vietnam War. There oh, wow. was major political unrest. 
there was protest, looting, rioting. I mean, like it was kind of like 2020, but in 1968. <laughs> um, so it was just, it was just a all, lot going on, all bad, all around. It was um, also the year before the moon. <laughs> it was the year before man landed on the moon in 1969. You're right. Welcome to your history lesson. <laughs> I'm sorry. Leave it. Is, that, is it the Even Steven song? Yeah. Uh-huh. We went to the moon in, in 1969. 1969. Yep. So, okay. Unpause. Sorry. Not that this was ever paused. This will all remain. Welcome to History with Sandy and Stephanie. <laughs> um, Assistant DA Treadwell alleged that James had murdered other children, although he was unable to produce any proof, and the other children are his own. Um, he had doctors, nurses, and expert witnesses explain that the poison was... He had doctors, nurses, and expert witnesses explain the poison that was used. He had officers wearing giant protective gear bring in poison, making sure that they held it far away from their bodies. So basically, it was more of like an act to like mm-hmm. really show the jury like, oh, look how crazy and scary this poison is, which it was, but he was definitely putting on a show for them. Um, he testified that he had a receipt for the insurance policy James had purchased from Purvis, even though he was never able to produce that either. Um, he had the remaining two living jailhouse informants testify that James had confessed to them. And Judge Justice, who was the judge, the presiding judge at this time, he allowed for hearsay evidence from five different people to present the testimony of the informant that had died in a bar fight. So hearsay evidence is basically when a witness is giving evidence in court, they cannot use what someone else has said as evidence, but Mm -hmm. this judge is allowing it because that witness, um, the informant had already passed away. So basically anyone that could come forward and say, Oh, he, this is what he told me. Um, they're allowing that as actual evidence that what he said is true, even though that could be different from every pers- everyone's perspective and that's never yeah. ever allowed this specific judge was all for it so bring it on and he wasn't even alive to say and yes right. i did say that or no i didn't no but why not bring it on judge justice allowed four reporters and um, assistant da treadwell himself to get on the stand to testify to what washington who was the informant that had passed away had confessed Robinson's partner, um, Whitson, had also spoken to Washington and stated that Washington had actually made the whole thing up. When he took the stand to testify this, Assistant DA Treadwell objected on the grounds that Whitson was participating in the trial, even though Treadwell himself was allowed to testify, Mm. but didn't want anyone else to testify because it would go against what he was saying. So... All around, just a mess. This this trial is clearly not. They're only allowing what goes with their narrative, right? They, That's how the yes. crime happened. They decided James Joseph Richardson did this, and anything that could prove otherwise was not allowed in court. So, all in all, the prosecution called thirty-seven witnesses, but they did not call on some major players, including Bessie, who fed the children, Charlie, who supposedly found the poison in the shed or George Purvis, who had sold James the insurance policy. None of the witnesses that testified testified that James had bought or was ever seen with a bag of poison. So no one could actually place the bag of poison with with James. They Mm -hmm. were all just on there saying whatever they wanted to say, but nothing ever 
um, stated that he actually had it. By the time the defense argued their case, they felt that they had an easy acquittal. They called on Annie Mae, who testified that James would never kill their children and that he didn't have access to any of the food that was fed to the children that day. They also brought in people who had been in jail with James who all testified that he had never confessed and had actually spent his time in jail crying and grieving the loss of his children. Oh, I know. The defense rests and the jury goes to deliberate, taking only 30 minutes before having a verdict. On May 31st, 1968, just four days after the trial began, the jury delivered their guilty verdict, sentencing James to death. Robinson appeals the decision on the basis of hearsay evidence being included, and Klein influencing the jury by bringing the poison, wearing gloves and protective gear, but he loses the appeal. Mark Lane, who had been following the case in the media, meets with Robinson and James in prison and promises to continue fighting for his innocence and begins the Free James Richardson campaign. He writes a book called Arcadia, which outlines the inconsistencies in the case and states that, in fact, someone else had committed the murders. Robinson appeals the decision on the basis of hearsay evidence being included and Klein influencing the jury by bringing the poison wearing gloves and protective gear, but he loses the appeal. Mark Lane, who had been following the case unfold in the media, meets with Robinson and James in prison and promises to continue fighting for his innocence. He then begins the Free James Richardson's campaign. He writes a book called Arcadia, which outlines all the inconsistencies in the case and states that, in fact, someone else had committed the murders. While James is waiting the death sentence, the Supreme Court decides to abolish the death penalty and his sentence is commuted to 25 years, making him eligible for parole in 1993. But meanwhile, Assistant DA Treadwell, he begins to drunkenly um, brag about railroading James, which he denies once is sober, but his secretary doesn't believe it. So she tells her boyfriend about what Treadwell has been saying about railroading Richardson, and the boyfriend decides to steal the keys to the prosecutor's office and takes the Richardson file. So now there's a Richardson file out there. Stolen for Stolen. the win. <laughs> Stolen. They try to get it to Robinson, but he believes the call to be a prank call and just ignores it. Eventually, in 1998, Mark Lane obtains a copy of the file and finally has the proof that he needs. That same year, the only remaining informant recants his confession and signs an affidavit stating that he had been coerced to testify by DA Frank Schaub and Frank Klein with the DeSoto County Sheriff. So Mark Lane is able to show that the defense had not been made aware of the following four things. So the first being that Bessie had been on probation for shooting and killing her second husband or that she had potentially poisoned her first husband to death that they were never given a copy of an insurance report from the Union National Life Insurance, which was the company that George Purvis worked for, that did not have James's name on it, meaning there was never any policy. They didn't know of the search warrant for Bessie's apartment in which traces of parathion were found on some of the clothes. They also recovered a bag containing a left-hand glove similar to the right-hand glove in Richardson's apartment. The right-hand glove also contained traces of parathion, and lastly, they were not aware that the prosecution had a report from the Duval County Sheriff's Department from 1967 that stated that there was no evidence that Richardson had been involved in any of the deaths of his other children. Mark Lane makes copies of all the incriminating evidence and begins to distribute it to the press, drawing attention to James's case once again. 
Bessie Reese, who was living in hospice at the time, suffering from Alzheimer's disease, confesses to her nurses to the poisoning of the children. The nurses come forward and provide affidavits stating Bessie had confessed to the crime over a hundred times. Finally, former Acadia Police Chief Richard Barnard provided an affidavit stating that Richardson was in fact an innocent man and that he had been framed by Frank Klein in order to protect Bessie Reese without providing a reason. Mark turns over everything he has to Florida Governor Robert Martinez, who decides to have Attorney Janet Reno take a closer look at the case. The Florida Supreme Court chose retired Circuit Judge Clifton Kelly um, of Highlands County to hear the Richardson request for a new trial. Um, Kelly was a respected and dignified jurist familiar with the ways of life in rural Central Florida, so he just seemed like the perfect choice to hear hear the the request for the new trial so the state vigorously opposed a new trial incredibly the da um frank schaub came out of retirement to declare that it is one of the strongest cases i have ever presented to a jury so he's still claiming he's got the right man Mm mm-hmm Um, On May 2nd of 1989, Judge Kelly conducted an evidentiary hearing, and after hearing more than eight hours of arguments, took 35 minutes to grant Richardson's motion to vacate his conviction and sentence. All the charges against Richardson were null proceed, a.k.a. they were terminated. Judge Kelly actually stated that the enormity of the crime is matched only by the enormity of the injustices done to this man. So... I think everyone realized what was going on there. Um, Richardson then filed um, a lawsuit against the DeSoto County for wrongful conviction and eventually settled for $150,000, most of which went for legal expenses occurred since 1968. Janet Reno claimed that the trial was nothing more than a farce with the state presenting arguments, theories, and testimony, which it knew was directly contradicted by the evidence in its hidden file and which was not known to the defense attorney or the court. Had someone not broken into the office of the former assistant state attorney, stolen the files, and forwarded them to the governor's office, Mr. Richardson might still be sitting in prison, and the egregious nature of the state and sheriff's actions in this case might never have been uncovered. Not only couldn't the state prove James Richardson was guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, but James Richardson was probably wrongfully accused. Mm -hmm. Sad. That person that stole the files, did they ever get in trouble? I never read anything about him getting (laughs) in trouble. Um, I don't know. No, I don't. I never read anything. I mean, I wonder if it was just like so long after and because it brought so much corruption to light Mm -hmm. that maybe they were just like, "Eh, you're fine. You get a pass. Um, So a few years later, Shab was actually suspended for 30 days for prosecutorial misconduct uh, for his actions during an unrelated case, but among the charges were knowingly making a false statement of material fact or law to a tribunal and knowingly failing to disclose a material fact to the defense. So it sounds like he, this is just kind of the way he operates. It's his MO, mm-hmm. basically. And um, what he did to James Joseph Richardson was not an isolated event. Schaub ended up dying in 1995, but the DeSoto County State Attorney's Office um, continued to watch over Richardson's compensation request, um, proactively lobbying for its dismissal. They were at almost every meeting. All they would do was sit there and go, I object, I object, I object to everything James attorneys 
brought up. So even though charges were dropped, even though um, Frank Schaub had passed away, the DeSoto County State Attorney's Office continued to just basically harass this innocent man. Um, unfortunately, because of the way Richardson's conviction was overturned, which was special prosecutor's review rather than court overturned, his $1.2 million compensation was constantly denied in numerous court hearings and legislative actions over more than 20 years. So I, in one of the articles I read, they stated, you know, make no mistake about it, the ugly smear of Southern racism once again settled firmly over James Richardson in the guise of the DeSoto objectors still defending their bruised heritage and justice. I mean, I can't put it any better than that. Yeah. Um, finally, in 2014, Florida Governor Rick Scott signed HB 227, the bill provides compensation to wrongfully incarcerated person convicted and sentenced prior to December 31st, 1979, whose case was reversed by a special prosecutor's review. So under this bill, Richardson may be the only individual eligible under this restricted law. And still might not get it. And still might not get it. So 47 years after James Richardson's wrongful conviction and death sentence, and 26 years after his freedom and declaration of innocence, he received a compensation check. He will receive 10 checks for $112,000 each year through 2025. Oh, so he did get it. So he does get some money. So it, I read that $25,000 from each check goes to the attorney's and lobbyist who navigated Richardson's case through decades of legal hoops. Oh, so he, he gets get money, but he doesn't get all of it. Mm-hmm. Um, James Richardson, who is 81, lives today at an undisclosed location in Wichita, Kansas, with his new wife Teresa. He and Annie Mae separated after he, shortly after he, was out of jail, out of prison. Um, he does worry that um, if people find out he has money, someone will come and try to rob him. So Aww. he still lives in Pierre. Yeah. Um, he had open heart surgery in 1987. Um, he was never able to get it in, in prison. Um, but the, the surgery that he got once he was released from prison actually saved his life. And his um, nemesis, former Sheriff Klein, lost two elections in the 1980s and retired to Port Charlotte where he died in October 2013. So it's a lose-lose. everyone around you know like there's really no like huge huge happy ending here um other than him being released he was released it still ruins a person's life right apart from taking away all that time it's hard for them to have a normal life yeah they stole his youth you know he was unable to have a successful marriage with his wife he he was older when he got out so it was Mm -hmm. really hard for him to find a job you know he is getting money but you know, good chunk of that money is going to pay for his legal fees. So that's the story of James Joseph Richardson. And in case anyone is wondering if anything's changed in Arcadia, here are some fun facts. (laughs) Um, Arcadia is listed as number three on a list of Florida cities with the most racism. Um, A candidate for DeSoto County supervisor has been accused of hurling racist remarks at employees, according to a federal lawsuit. And that was in 2020. So this year, um, as of July 14th of this year, a mask mandate in DeSoto County seems unlikely in spite of a spike in coronavirus cases. Mm. Um, according to the county commissioner, Elton Langford, 
I will not mandate in this county that everybody has to wear a mask. You're adults, you do what's best for you and your family, and you be responsible for what happens with your life and well-being. Which sounds a little backwards because as a county commissioner, is it not your duty to protect your county? Yeah. So shouldn't you be responsible for some of that <laughs> and not just I know I'm responsible, but you be responsible. Yeah. Yeah. I trust you to be responsible for my job. <laughs> Anyways. Um, and then another little tidbit I found was that um, recently there's um, the DeSoto County Chamber of Commerce hired a consultant from Virginia to analyze life in the county and tell the locals what they might do to attract new industry. So this is like a small little town. Nothing has really changed. People are wondering what they can do to kind of stimulate, you know, the town. Mm -hmm. And the report found that the biggest problem in trying to make changes in Arcadia and the county in general was that most folks here oppose change of any kind, including development. Okay. So... Another thing I read was that Arcadia seems to be the same town it was a hundred or so years ago. So this report finds just that the people in the town are very unwilling to change. Stuck in their ways. Stuck in their ways. And even though we're in 2020, I mean, we're seeing it everywhere. We live in California and we see awful things happen here. Obviously not as awful maybe or as rampant as it might be in other parts of the country but if it's Uh happening here in california Mm -hmm. i feel like we can only imagine what it's like in other places like this little town yeah so it's really sad um but um for those who are wondering what they can do to help or how they can help the um, naacp legal defense fund is taking donations they need your donation today more than ever as they protect voters um, and continue to advance the cause for racial justice, equality, and inclus- and an inclusive society, you can go to NAACPLDF.org to donate. Um, so that's just one thing we can do. Yeah. I think Sandy has a nice little bright ray spot. of sunshine. I have a bright spot. Um, so it has nothing to do with wrongful conviction necessarily, but there is uh, some prison reform talk going on in Florida, mm-hmm. uh, which is really nice. And especially in Arcadia, which, like you said, they're kind of been stuck in their ways. And so this push for the prison reform in Arcadia is really nice um, to see happening. So last year in 2019, the Herald Tribune and USA Today published an investigation project called Wasted Minds which looked at Florida's failure in providing education to inmates, which studies have proven to help with rehabilitation and to decrease the amount of reoffenders. Mm-hmm. Uh, so according to an article in the ledger called Extreme Paradigm Shift on State Prison System by Ryan McKinnon, um, after the project was published, Arcadia lawmakers responded by promising um, to propose to spend millions of dollars to expand access to inmate education. Uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis then suggested increasing the prison system's education budget by 20% in 2020. So mm-hmm. hopefully we'll see that um, pull through this year. 
Uh, a legislation has also been filed to reinstate the Inmate Welfare Trust Fund, which would steer the proceeds from commissary sales and inmate phone calls toward more rehabilitative programming, which Florida is one of the few states to not have this in place, mm-hmm. um, which, first of all, I didn't know that was a thing um, to be using the commissary funds going back into the prison to benefit the prisoners. Mm-hmm. But now that I know it, I'm like, why doesn't everyone do that? Mm-hmm. It makes sense. Um, but then the article also noted that one literacy program at the DeSoto Correctional Institution in Arcadia has already helped to change the culture of the once violent prison. So they're slowly making changes and it seems like this year um, they'll be heading in a better direction for some prison reform and education for the inmates. Yeah, so, which is great to hear, right? And so mm-hmm. when you have a town like Arcadia that kind of refuses to change and to progress and just be better, mm-hmm. um, you have lawmakers kind of forcing them into um, into change. And so it's a small thing, and it's obviously unfortunate that it's happening in the prisons, but it's also really good because hopefully some of these people who do get released find better or have a higher chance of success in the outside world and then, you know, are less likely to go back to prison. Mm -hmm. But it also brings up a really good point in that for those people who think or feel helpless, like I feel like I have felt in the past when it comes to voting, you know, you kind of feel like, what does voting do? Yeah. Nothing really changes. I'm just one vote. Mm -hmm. It's situations like this where you see the town might not change, but the people who you are electing into office are able to bring about change. Right. So when it comes to all things, not just prison reform, but when it comes to your schools, when it comes to your cities, your towns, everything local, everything local is yeah right in your hands. So it's really great to see that even though it is Florida, there has been some right change mm-hmm. in the right direction when it comes to prison reform, which is huge. Yeah. We might country. be, they might be inching their way, but at least yeah. they're like, they're slowly getting in a way. <laughs> yeah. So that's actually like a nice place. Like that's a nice thing to end it on. I think mm-hmm. like, yes, everything is kind of falling apart around us, but elections are coming up. Mm-hmm. A lot of local elections are coming up. They are. So go and vote. Make sure you know the dates that you need to have your ballots in by to mm-hmm. make sure that it gets to your polling places or wherever mm-hmm. on time. There's or know where resources. your polling places are. There's plenty of resources mm-hmm. online to figure out how to do that. Um, and if not, wear a mask. <laughs> bring some antibacterial <laughs> some hand sanitizer and stand in line mm-hmm. if we stand in line for concerts for movie premieres that's true for hamilton tickets <laughs> we can all stand in line to vote when the time comes so that was the crazy story of james joseph richardson thank you so much for listening don't forget to subscribe rate review I don't know if those are two different things, but if they are, (laughs) do both. If they're the same thing, congratulations. You've done both in one. Um, Follow us on Instagram, Unjustly Podcast. Uh, If you have any questions, comments, concerns, and you want to email us at unjustlypodcast at gmail.com. Send us suggestions. 
yeah, suggestions. Surprisingly, I we've already been getting stories on Instagram. Mm-hmm. People are um, messaging us about their own personal stories. Um, we have some inmates that mm-hmm. are saying that they're innocent and they would like us to review their cases. So we're in the process of reviewing all of that stuff. Again, we're not lawyers, but we like to research. So we will do so. Um, so please contact us. We want to have this as an open conversation um, to all the listeners and for us to learn as well. Also, tell us how you're not, how you're staying sane during, during the pandemic. The pandemic, during the <laughs> lockdown, because I'm running out of things to do. Send us ideas. Send us ideas. We like to craft. Sandy's husband likes to cook. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, yeah. Send us recipes. Recipes. Oh, this is going to be fun. Send us everything. (laughs) I don't know. Send us things to do. Thank you, guys. See you you. next time. See you next week. Oh, next week will be my story. Mm -hmm. Just quick plug-in. I'm going to be talking about rape culture. Oof. It's going to be a heavy one. Yeah. So don't don't forget to listen in. Mm -hmm. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Bye. 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 Bye.